All right, everybody, we are back with another episode of the Closed Real Estate Podcast. It's Lee and Brad today, and we are super excited to have with us Yanni Einhorn. He's the managing principal of Grid Group, which is a New York City real estate development firm with a dedication to quality and craft. Uh, Yanni oversees the design and construction of more than $300 million in project value right now. And we're going to dive a little bit into some of the work that he's done, some of the work that's to come. But first off, Yanni, thanks for having us here today or joining us here today. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Glad to be here. Nice to meet you both. Nice All to right. meet you. Um, so why don't we just, why don't we start at the beginning? Um, I, you know, from reading about you, it seems like you have a pretty interesting backstory, but how did you get involved in the um, New York City design and construction industry? Mm, sure. Um, well, I, I, I kind of playfully say that I'm the, I'm the son of three architects, which is, uh, which is funny because my, my mother was an architect, my father is an architect, and my, my stepmother was an architect. Um, so uh, it, uh, it was really very much in the DNA and in the family, the design and the and architects who practiced in New York City, I should say. So it was very much in the DNA to and growing up in, in New York and in Brownstone, Brooklyn was just a big part of uh, seeing the design and construction around me all the time. Um, uh, my grandfather happens to have also been a, a well-known architect who I was named after. So maybe I'm the son of four architects, if you will. But but, uh, but sort of design and construction has always been a big part of, of uh, my life. Um, and, uh, you know, fast forwarding a bit, my uh, I always worked in construction sort of in summers, you know, putting putting on roofs and doing framing and that sort of stuff as a summer gig. And uh, did a lot of woodworking at a hobby level with my father, uh, which was always a passion of both of ours, um, which also helped with sort of the construction background. And um, my my father was a, uh, was an architect who did mainly brown mainly uh, took on projects and clients in Brownstone, Brooklyn, and um, and this is now in the late fifties, sixties. This is when you were buying brownstones in Park Slope for fifteen thousand bucks, right? <laughs> a different, a totally different time. Um, and uh, I grew up in one of those brownstones that my father bought in nineteen sixty. Uh, his office was on the third floor, and um, and he would have clients that would call him because they knew he was in the in the business and say, "Hey, can would you please come and take a look at this building? We're thinking about purchasing it." And he said, well, yeah, yes, I'd love to, hoping that he'd get an architectural gig. Um, uh, eventually, that turned into a business where he said, you know, I'm going to charge to go look at these buildings. And if I get the architectural gig, I'll, I'll give back the fee towards services. And if not, at least I got my time covered. That slowly transitioned to just being old house inspection company, um, which was a, which even to this day is a pretty well-known due diligence pre-purchase home inspection business. and." Um, the, his business model really changed from having, you know, uh, maybe four or five clients a year doing brown needy clients a year doing brownstone renovation work, to probably having three or four hundred clients, um, a, uh, you know, a year who or many repeat ones who would look at brownstones in, in these neighborhoods. So that business started in the '60s. Um, I graduated college in uh, 2001. 
And I think after about six months after graduation, my father said, you know, you know, put your shoes on, get off the couch and you're going to come with me and learn this uh, home inspection business. And um, I enjoyed it very much. I, 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 in the next five years, I probably went through five or 6,000 brownstone properties and, um, and learned, and, and it was really interesting from many levels. One was, you know, you, you're seeing what's selling. So you'd see incredible design because we could be one day, we could be looking at a $250,000 shell of a building, maybe in Bed-Stuy at the time. Um, and then in that afternoon, we'd be looking at a $25 million mansion off of Fifth Avenue. And they could be within, a, within an appointment of each other. And some would have incredible, and some, and, and the people you would meet that were involved in those transactions and the, um, and the design and the care that went into all of these buildings were so, so unique. It was just incredible. But I slowly took on the task of sort of being the, um, the diagnostician. I would, I would kind of be called in to go and look at specific issues that we get called for. So we'd get a phone call saying, oh, you know, this, I don't know why every time it rains, but only when the rain is coming from the west side do I have this leak showing up inside my kid's bedroom underneath the, you know, underneath the window. And so I would, I would sort of be the one that would go in and, 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 and be, again, sort of like the diagnostician. And, that, and, I, and I really enjoyed that role. Um, and then slowly uh, I started to get an itch saying, you know, Dad, we're, there's so many opportunities, I think. You know, we're, we're like we're such an interesting barometer for the business. So we're getting, we're getting 10 phone calls a week to go to this neighborhood where we didn't even a year ago. Like we should probably start buying buildings in this neighborhood, <laughs> you know, or looking for opportunities in this neighborhood. And um, I convinced, I sort of convinced my father that, you know, let's give it a try. Let me um, help seed me with a little bit of money to buy a building at the time it was in Park Slope and South Slope on 12th Street. And, um, you know, I didn't have anything. I think I had $10,000 to my name or something, you know. Um, so we bought a building and uh, converted it into four units. I think with with that building, um, uh, each apartment made you know two or three hundred thousand dollars or something like that. So it was almost like a million bucks in a year. When I was twenty seven years old, it was uh, mind boggling. And I said, Dad, I love this home inspection business, but I really like this development business. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I think we can take all that we know about construction and what goes and what goes right and what people are looking for. And if, we can, and if we can keep the home inspection business going so we can still have those indicators of what, of what people are looking for, but also seeing where things are failing and, and turn that into a business of, of building, I think we'll, we'll set ourselves apart. Um, and so you, almost used, you, you almost used the home inspection business as like a market predictor business that helped influence the bets that you place in various markets. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I think it is, it is true to an extent. I mean, we, uh, frankly, we should have gone into certain neighborhoods where we were getting those phone calls, but we still weren't quite sure that we were believers yet. Right. So I don't yeah. want to say we used it as such a good uh, telltale, you know, indicator, but uh, 
you know, we still stuck to our guns, mostly with locations we were comfortable with. But I think a lot of it was design. You you see these incredible designs. We had the opportunities just to go into such some really fantastic spaces. You said, wow, this is incredible that how somebody put this detail together or how somebody married these two materials together. We could we could do that and and do that on production level. It would be very sexy and be very appealing to many people. And I think we've successfully did that or see layouts. Wow, I can't believe this is a 700 square foot apartment. It feels like it's a thousand square feet. How do they do this? You know, and, and you get you just get creative ideas. And I think um you know, unfortunately, I'm much less involved. In fact, not at all in the home inspection business anymore. So I wish I could tell you that we have a lot. I, I still have a lot of that in, you know, that input. But um, you know, it's turned into oh, really we were, just we were, we were, were going to mine you for information for our own purposes. So I guess the that part of the interview is not going to work anymore. <laughs> what what happened after that first? If we could just go back to kind of the uh, the history there after the first building, right? It was a four units, where'd you go next? Like what was the next, uh, what was the next neighborhood you, you, uh, you look to or the next project sure. that you guys kind of look to? So I stayed in, stayed in Park Slope, um, uh, did an eight, so went from a four family, then went to an eight family. Uh, then I uh, did another couple four families and some vacant kind of SRO type buildings that we just kind of cleaned up and, 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 but mainly brownstone type of buildings because they were really, we're very comfortable with. I could, you know, take one apart and put one together in my sleep, a brownstone type building. So a row house, whatever you want to call it. Um, um, and then there was sort of a leap of faith to go into Manhattan and we moved and we went into a building. We got into a building on 24th street between second and third, which was a very unique building. Um, um, about a 40 footer, six stories, uh, built like a Tribeca loft building. So I, rumor had it that it was a mandolin manufacturing building, which kind of had a nice sound to it. Nobody, you know, no pun intended, but it, had, but it did. It had sort of, you know, uh, it had a little drama. So um, it was being it was being offered by, at the time by um, um, uh, Mazinacle. Um, which doesn't exist anymore, right? But, um, and that building was, uh, again, just sort of this, this loft building that was transplanted on 24th between 2nd and 3rd. I mean, if you looked at the land maps, at one point you would have just seen this building and then a couple other smaller row houses around it because it was really a manufacturing building. Um, it was a woodworking shop that was in there at the time, and it was being sold... Um, mistakenly by the by the brokers were saying you know if you want to do a residential conversion on this building you're going to have to tear 30 feet off the back of the building in order to get legal light and air and uh which is what, what like many people are talking about today right with these office conversions how complicated they are um but so this one was they were saying oh well you're going to have to and we said well that's not always the case because, you know, buildings built prior to 1961 have certain exclusions for doing uh, loft conversions, you know, Article, article 7B conversions or uh, uh, conversions of non-conforming buildings, all of these zoning and multiple dwelling text, uh, which we know well because we have this architectural and engineering background. So we, 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 you know, we, I've read the zoning text 
the 5,000 pages of it three times. Most people can barely get through it once, right? So, so we, we, um, did you listen to it on an audio book or you actually physically read it? Actually read it. Yeah. No, oh, actually, okay. Actually, actually read it. An audio book would be a clever idea though. Um, but, um, so uh, we knew that you didn't have to do that because there was enough of a rear yard that would satisfy the relief that's offered as of right. So where you know, so we were like, no, no you don't have to do anything. Like, I, I, that's fine. Scare away everybody else, but we know what we could do here. And so we we jumped on it. We bought it. You know, we were buying it for a couple hundred bucks a foot. You could buy a building like that at the time. And uh, did them as like white boxes, uh, brought up new plumbing and equipment, kind of more so glorified white boxes and sold those off. And that was sort of our entree into the New York market, into the New York City market. And then as that that was successful, we bought a ground up project um, on 22nd Street, uh, not too far from there, um, um, which was another six, seven story building. And then uh, that morphed into doing a building on 16th Street which is actually where I am, where I am now, um, which is a, a, a large sort of uh, not a 15 unit, 60,000 square foot building, 12 stories. Um, <clears throat> and of course, uh, Central Park North uh, was also a ground up 13 story building. Um, but I would say that once, once we got comfortable and did the toggle from going from just doing a renovation of an existing building to ground up construction, which is not an easy kind of cliff to jump off of when you're very comfortable doing just renovations. But once we did it, we never looked back. So ah, I don't want to, I don't want existing conditions anymore. I just want to create my own conditions and, and build an, you know, and build a new. What, uh, what were some of the challenges? It sounds like, it, I mean, for, I imagine there's a number of reasons why it was a more attractive business model, but what were some of the the challenges in the toggle? What were some of the things that you had to get up to speed on quickly when you were making the transition from rehab to or renovation to ground up? Um, sure. Well, the building department, you know, and filing process was 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 so much more intense, right? A new building versus an alteration. You know, if you're just doing an alteration type of application to convert a building or to renovate existing apartments, it was it's a pretty basic application right. um, versus all the filings and supplemental filings and uh, uh, to do to do a new building, which we didn't. You know, you get through your first one, you learn 90 percent of it. And then the, you know, the next two or three and you, you feel like a crackerjack at the building department. But it takes a long time. Um, so I'd say the filing process is intense. Um and then, um, you know, we just had never done, we had done plenty of underpinning and digging down and creating subterranean spaces, but we had never built foundations. We'd inspected them, we'd looked at them, but I never knew what it would really take to have an excavator on a job site. You know, we were digging by hand. It was just a different, it's just, it was a totally different uh, uh, animal. Um, but again, once you, once you start with it, um, it, it's it's hard to it's hard to look you know hard to look back but um having said that if i could find a beautiful vacant you know building in nice shape i would i would jump on it you know <laughs> but, but i think that's also part of it right there's more there's there's probably more competition for buildings that can be cleaned up and either rented or resold 
then a site that has to be demolished, full building department approvals and, and rebuilt to then be, you know, leased up or resold. So I, I guess for a family and someone with design in the blood, that creativity is, is probably scary for some people, the, the blank slate fear of the unknown, but to you, it sounds like it's exciting. Um, is that a fair interpretation of part of what's going on here? Yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's right. Um, you know, we have the ability to sort of three dimensionalize a new building very quickly. You know, see a lot, um, understand the zoning, understand the neighbors. Can you do a, a transferable development right deal with the neighbors? Is there more zoning potential? Is there, a, you know, something cute we could do with parking or is there something, you know, you, and then you can really, we can always, and then we can immediately sort of envision this three-dimensional envelope. Not necessarily, I don't know if it's going to be brick or glass or limestone, I don't, not, 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 a, that, not that granular, but just exactly, you know, how many floors, how many units within a few, how it would lay out very, very quickly, like within minutes. <laughs> of looking at a job site. Yeah. That actually reminds me. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I think it was one of the interviews I had read uh, that you were involved in a couple of years ago. You talked about how you've got to always keep this pipeline going, right? And I, I'm probably going to misquote this, but you look at three to five deals a day or a week and X number of hundreds of opportunities a year. Obviously, the vast, vast majority of those don't materialize. You sort of have to be selective. And could you sort of walk us through how do these opportunities come up? And what do you, you know, you, you made a comment about kind of being able to visualize within a matter of minutes. What can we put here? What's it going to look like? Do we think it's going to work? Um, maybe just speak to that a little bit if you could. Um, sure, sure. Um, no, I think that that, that state, that old statement is, is, is fairly, is, is somewhat still accurate. Although I'm hunting less for deals and more are coming to me, which is yep. sort of nice. You know, you spend a lot of time just looking for deals. Now, as you become a little bit more well-known and have a track record, people find you and shop you the deal. Um, but nonetheless, we're still looking at, yeah, anything from easily from two to five a day, maybe 10 that come across our desk. Um, um, I might ask you to repeat the question, but, but I, um, I'm actually just curious, it'd be interesting to know. So you go, you say you go look at a deal, you look at an opportunity. What are you, you know, who are you meeting there? What questions are you asking? What are you physically inspecting? If anything, sort of, what do you, what's your process for figuring out if there's an opportunity worth exploring beyond the first hour? Right. The first glance. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I think because because of our friend Google, Earth has made and, and, and all these online databases, Zola and Google and Acris and, you know, all of these all these sites that are made things so available. We don't have to go out onto the job site as not I me, mean, not the job site, excuse me, onto, to go look at a new site as, as much as we probably would have. 10 years ago, you know, I probably would have been like in my car trying to find an address, you know, running around to go look at a site to then look at a paper zoning map to understand what it is. But now it's so it's so transparent and so easy to access that um, 
a lot of it is just very, very, very quick. Like, um, you know, uh, uh, is it being, is it being, is the site of interest, number one location, right? And then if it's not in a location we're interested, we dismiss it immediately because we're just, there's just not enough bandwidth to just do something for fun. So, so we're really looking at specific locations. So we will, we will dismiss a lot because they just don't fit our criteria in terms of location or size. Um, and so that's an easy weed. And then, um, you know, the zoning uh, is, is the site being advertised correctly. So we'll look at very quickly at the zoning to make sure that if they say you can build, you know, a hundred thousand square feet, is it really a hundred thousand? Or is it 50,000 residential and 50,000 community facility? And you're like, well, it's not really 100,000. I mean, it is, but it's not, you know, it's not going to, and but they value it based on 100,000 of resi, but it's really, you know, 50-50. So, well, and then if that's the case and the pricing is still, you know, reflective of resi pricing, we know that it's not a real uh, seller. And then we might just dismiss that right away. So we do these kind of quick weeds and weed outs. And then we'll, um, and then eventually, uh, and then of course on Google and looking at neighbors and how many neighbors do you touch and what are the conditions going to be like to build there? Um, we can look at a neighbor to see, for example, very quickly, we can determine are there transferable development rights available from a neighbor? If we need to fill in an envelope, we might find a site that you run out of, uh, you run, you run out of bulk before you run out of height, right? So, which, uh, happens in Manhattan more than Brooklyn. Um, but um, so sometimes you have you have height to go, but you have no more bulk and you can buy it from neighbors and you can check very quickly these days if that's available. Um, so that might be and also also sort of a first a first step to see if there's if there's a play like that to sort of blend down the price of the acquisition by knowing that you might be able to purchase air rights from a neighbor. We also look to see how many neighbors we touch, because quite frankly, in this business, neighbor relations and logistics have become a big part of the business. You know, license agreement. I mean, I'm sure you've heard of license agreements, and or maybe you even his ears just perked up because uh, that's well, Brad, Brad, Brad dreams about li- Brad literally dreams about license agreements at night. He's that's his. Oh, you can't tell everyone my secrets like that, Lee. They keep that me up. Nice. We'll do that in confidence. Brad wakes up in the morning and he's like, "I have a great idea for our next license agreement." it's it's interesting to hear you say that because that is dealing with adjacent property issues is a large part of our work as a law firm and what you're saying echoes we've heard a lot of other uh real estate uh developers and lawyers say that you know i i haven't been able to put my finger on exactly why this is but what a lot of people tell us is the neighbor access issues and just neighbor issues in general never seemed to be such a big problem 10 years ago, but now it's such a big part of your, the spectrum of issues you consider. I mean, we just threw open a general question to you. What do you look at in a new site? And one of the top three things you said was how many neighbors do you touch? So um, you have any sense of like, why why is it that it's become it's your fault, Brad. It's primarily yeah. you. This industry evolved. Um, I, I don't know where it, but you hit you hit it on that on the head ten years ago. Yeah. 
And I could, that would be an interesting moment in time to look back and say, was there zoning? Was there billing department memorandum that came out that made it more specific and strict for neighbor interactions? Maybe. I, I can't actually remember, but I, I'll go look. I think, I, I think it's probably SEO and owners going on Google and typing, my developer wants to build next to me. What do I do? And you have law firms that started to, to build websites and architects and engineers build websites talking about these issues. Because yep. more than any other legal issue that our, and our firm handles a myriad of real estate issues, we get the most cold calls about access agreements by just like one article that we wrote. So I think it's a lot of it is tied to Google began to pick up these articles and they were more easily found than prior to, you know, 10, 12 years ago. It's my guess. The other thing that, not to answer the question that I threw out there, but what you just said, Lee, is <laughs> there have actually there have also been some court decisions in the last five to ten years that have blessed and sanctioned the idea that neighbors are entitled to compensation if you touch their property, right? If you put scaffolding, if you put roof protection, netting, things that the city seems to be blanketed with. Again, what I've heard secondhand is people said 10, 15, 20 years ago, you'd go knock on the door, your architect or your contractor would knock on the door and try to make nice with the neighbor and say, we've got to put some scaffolding up. Is that okay with you? We'll add you to our insurance policy. We'll be out of your hair in no time. I think that the court decisions blessing the charging of license fees has had a lot to do with it, but I don't know. That's, yeah. we, we're always sort of on that end of it, right? That's right. I mean, like you said it exactly. I walk over with a box of cookies and a bottle of wine. I'm the developer. I'm the neighbor. It's so nice to meet you. Here's my telephone number. You call me anytime and there's ever an issue. We're going to be building next to you. We might need access. Be lovely if you can, if I could throw an extension cord over, we could use some electricity or use some water, you know, like, I mean, these are the kinds of conversations, you know, and, you know, if you, we'll send you out of town for a weekend when it's going to be really noisy, you know, like it was just like, you know, a scratch your, and, and by the end I would, um, and whatever, you, whatever you want, whatever we need to do to make you happy, you need a new, the fence looks really crummy in the background. We're going to put a new fence. We're going to, you know, we'll, we'll repave the front yard. We're ordering some windows. You need a couple windows. No problem. You know, like whatever, it was, that was the attitude. And every, and, and you know, I don't know if somebody screwed that up. You know, I'm sure a lot of people screwed that up, by the way, right? Like, I mean, people did awful things to neighbors and didn't deliver. And, and, and that's also what happened. But, you know, for us, we were, it was, it was great. And then boom, 10 years ago, it just became, it became this industry. Um, and, you know, I used to joke around, we'd say, okay, Look, let's look at a, let's look at the lot, look at the tax map. Have I said, how many neighbors do you touch? Oh, no, no shit. Six. <laughs> like, okay. yeah. uh, uh, 20 grand a piece, 120 grand. Just put that in our line item budget because whatever it's going to be, it's going to be that we're probably up to 50 to 75 a grand a piece, you know, maybe even a hundred. It might be $600,000 if you're touching six neighbors. One of them could get 200. One of them can, one of them, they might be doing local law work in six months and they know that. So they're not going to hold you up. They're going to say, listen, just be nice to us and we'll be nice to you. And we, we hope for that because that's the way we operate. Um, you know, um, and others, their objective is to, you know, is just to protect their view as long as they can. 
right? So they say, look, I know you're going to build, but if I'm a prick about it, I can have my window for two more years. Yeah. You know? And so it's, uh, and then, and then everybody wonders why real estate is so expensive. Right. I mean, it's not, look, there's a lot of reasons why, but that's not, it's not, that's not, not one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So look, I mean, I think Brad can talk about access agreement issues for. We have to move on because um, I'm. We want to be conscious of your time. I want to get to some of the great work you've done as well. So, you know, one of the, one of the buildings we wanted to talk about was you touched on it, 145 Central Park North. Obviously, it's a, it's a tricky time for the New York City new construction industry, but this is an example of, of a shining success story, you know, achieved record sales in Harlem, a lot of great press about it. So what do you, uh, how, you know, what do you explain about this building in general, or is it is it kind of specific to how you approach all new projects? What do you, what do you ascribe its success to? No, well, th- thank you for thank you for recognizing the project and and the and the nice accolades. We're very proud of it. Um, Neighbor access relations, right? <laughs> uh, that's right. That was a reasonable one. Um, that was more. Yeah, no, that one actually went went reasonably well. But we touched a lot of neighbors. Um, um, you know, that was a very unique site. So I, 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 I got into a partnership with, um, with my business partner around the time of that deal. And he was very bullish on Harlem. Whereas let's just say I would have been more bullish in Brooklyn. You know, I grew up there, I knew it better. And he, he just had a real fondness for Harlem. And we both like Manhattan, um, you know, uh, 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 downtown Manhattan. Um, um, but, uh, knowing that he was interested in doing something in Harlem, I sort of put my feelers out. Um, and, and I remember getting the listing, um, which the only reason we got it was because we had just closed on something else downtown. And, and we had, all we did was did what we said we were going to do. We actually showed up with the money and closed. And the guy goes, you don't even know how rare that is. That's unbelievable. I got plenty more deals for you. All you have to do, if all the people ever did would just show up and close, you know, I, the, the, this world would be much easier. So he says, I've got, I've got a great deal for you. And it's in Harlem. I said, really? Because my partner is really interested. So anyway, I get this listing and I look at it and I go, I don't know. Can I curse on this uh, podcast? Yeah. We've had a few episodes where all, okay. where all the... Guess it was cursed. No Holy. real substance at all. <laughs> Holy shit. This is, you know, a hundred feet of frontage on Central Park. This is, it doesn't, it just doesn't get any better than this. And I even write that. I just, I write to my business partner to be, I said, I know you're interested in Harlem. It doesn't get any effing better than this. Boom. Send. Right. I mean, within, I don't know. 30 seconds, writes me back, says, let's go. That's it. This is what we've been looking for. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I haven't even really dug in yet, you know, but, but we, um, we start looking at the site more carefully and it's a, it's a hundred feet of frontage. The unique part about it, you know, don't quote me because I don't have it in front of me. I want to say it was maybe 75 foot deep lot, maybe a 60 foot deep. I was a shallow lot, but, um, 
what's a, what, which has its strengths and its weaknesses. But the strength in this case is, you know, a 60, a 60 foot wide by a hundred foot deep lot is very normal, right? You have a 60 foot site, a typical lot's a hundred. So it's really, you know, you turn that, you have a hundred foot wide site, but it's only 60 feet deep, but you got the hundred feet the right way you want it, right? It's, it's on the park. And when you have a, and because you have to have a rear yard, um, you know, generally speaking, you would have a 30 foot rear yard, um, whereas you would end up with a 60 or 70 foot deep building. But in that, in that, that normal type of building, you usually have a core in the middle and corridors and you end up with front and back units, right? It's pretty normal. And, um, because we knew that, um, we would build a more shallow building, we thought, well, you know what we can do is we can have our stair and elevator core. And this goes back to kind of immediately sort of envisioning how you see a site and building a building. We said, wow, but we could take the stair and elevator core, throw it in the back, and we can just have three to four units flanking it that will all have frontage on the park. We said, we're not going to have any lemons, right? You can have a central park address and, and there's no apartments, there's no rear units, Right. Because if you look historically on units that are based on the park, those that front the park and those that don't, there is a 25 to 30 percent, if not more discount. I think at one point it was even 50 percent discount when you went north of 96th Street. Um, so he said this will be incredible because we can we can um, have all front facing units and build, you know, a 13 story building here. Um it, it had its challenges in that um, we, we wanted to go to the Board of Standards and Appeals on that project in order to get relief for some rear setbacks that were required at the time and also relief on some rear yard because to have a 60-foot deep site and then have to have a 30-foot rear yard, you know, you end up with a 30-foot deep project, which would be challenging. So it took a long time. We went to BSA the day we're about to get approval or like within a day and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars and time, uh, the ZQA gets approved by city planning, which was the largest sweeping zoning changes, I think, since the 60s. And everything that we were asking for, for the Board of Standards and Appeals became as of right. You know, they had shallow lot provisions for rear yards. They got rid of rear yard setbacks. They, uh, you know, even even front dormers, the rules were, were, were better established. And quite literally, every single thing that we were asking for that we spent two years negotiating just became as of right. So we abandoned our BSA case, refiled the drawings, did an as of right building on that project um, um, and built just incredible, incredible apartments. I mean, there, our vision was to do these, you know, most, um, primary suites and living rooms have, have their, 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 um, you know, fenestrations are on the park. Um, some of the secondary rooms and offices and stuff will be at the back, but even the back breaks all of the neighbor's buildings because most of them are only six or seven stories. So the upper seven floors have these incredible northbound views um, with balconies as well. Um, we were able to get parking, which was, um, uh, I think we have 10 or 11 parking spots on that project, which were all, um, which are actually all sold at this point. They were, they were um, well sought after. Um, and we're 80% sold. 
there. Um, I, 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 I'd love to be a hundred percent sold, but, uh, uh, we certainly have done, have done well. And, and, um, and I think, you know, hitting those hitting north of 2000 bucks a foot, uh, on, on that block in those locations was, was, was impressive. And it was a testament to the finishes, to the layouts. Gluck Architects did a great job. Um, they actually built the building as well as a design build company, which was a very cool process. Um, so I don't, did I, I'm sorry, I, I talked yeah, too much. No, 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 that's great. I mean, I, I, one thing springs to mind and maybe you already touched on it. And then, uh, and then, you know, I want to be conscious of your time and try to try to wrap up, but, um, kind of looping back to your past and to the, the present of this building, what, if any, were some of the lessons that you drew on like that initial boots in the ground inspection work in, in developing a building of this quality? Like, can you, can you link any of the lessons that you learned in those first through walkthroughs where you saw issues, identified issues for single family owners that you kind of sure. transferred to, to, to this project? Um, well, I, I, I think, I think one of the main, main things that we, that we're incredibly sensitive to is just our, our, our sort of masonry and roofing waterproofing, you know, systems, because look, nine out of 10 things that I was ever called in for were water related. Right? The yep. floor is buckling, the ceiling is leaking, stuffing's coming in. Every time it rains, it does this, right? Why does it smell mildewy? That's what be, and, and those are things that are hard to fix and uncomfortable situations to walk into people's places that have that have purchased thing that have purchased apartments for a lot of money and their floorboards are buckling, right? It's not it's it's not a place you want to find yourself. And it's certainly not a place I, I ever want to find myself. So so we we just put a tremendous amount of emphasis, money, and skill into our waterproofing membranes. Because again, you can't, like, you just, you can't find yourself in a position where you're in an apartment where you're having problems. Certainly not ones that you're selling, well, any apartment, but it doesn't even matter how much money you're selling it for. You just don't want it, you don't want an un unsatisfied, you know, customer. Yeah. Um, it's and funny. I think I think ninety percent of our calls are either access or water. So this, <laughs> I was waiting for you to say, "I'm the access agreement guy." Lee is like the leak guy. If you have a leak and you don't know who to call. Call Lee Bergstein. Good. Look, one of the first buildings we put up ground up on Thirteenth Street. I remember it well. We spent about three hundred fifty thousand dollars on superstructure. We spent three hundred fifty thousand dollars on waterproofing. That doesn't say, which is bananas. As much money on concrete as we yeah. did on waterproofing said concrete, right? But you know, but twelve years later, I never got a phone call. Uh, I mean, and we, we do our shower stalls the same way. Um, and and I did gain some of that knowledge from the home inspection business as well, like going into these fancy pre-war co-op buildings and hearing what the supers and what the project engineers would make their clients go through when they were doing renovations. They were doing this incredible waterproofing fiasco on every wall of a bathroom that these poor people, they're like, I just want to spend $5,000 and renovate a bathroom. They're spending $20,000 doing you know, waterproofing because the co-op board was making them do this and what turned in. But I'd say, wow, but 
like, yeah, sucks for them. But like, this is incredible. Like you, this is the way you should just build a bathroom because in vertical living, you can't have problems across units and things. So, so like we just like you pick up those little things and now you implement them. And yeah, like we, we spend a lot of money in our bathrooms, like do, doing that type of work. Now, how you receive value for that, we haven't figured out yet how to tap into. How do you educate the consumer well enough to know that what they're buying is so much better because it has all of these things that are put in it? Right. Maybe they, 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 need to have they need to have experienced something bad first in order to appreciate the value that you're delivering because most, I think most new construction buyers just expect it. Oh, I'm, I'm buying new construction. It's going to be perfect. There are not going to be leaks. It's everything's going to, you know, everything's going to be okay. And the reality is that's not, that's not always the case. Um, but you can't, you can't like say, Hey, we're charging you a little bit more because, because the, the roof membrane is so much better than the comparable buildings in, in the central park area or in Brooklyn. So it is challenging. It's, 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 it's hard to, it's hard to tap that, yeah, to tap that value. I mean, the best that we can do is we hope that the, our, our previous customers are so happy because they haven't had these issues that they tell their friends. Yeah. And then they, and they wait for our next project, which, which happens. And that's, that's, you know, it's lovely. Um, um, but yeah, no waterproof, so waterproofing and access agreements. That's the, that's, that's the name of the episode. Um, <laughs> Well, uh, again, you know, I think we probably, there were other things that I wanted to ask you, but I want to be conscious of your time and, and uh, we'll have you back on if you're open to it in the future to, to talk about what's going on in the, in the real estate market. So um, if, uh, if there are people out there who are interested in what you're working on, interested in um, 145 Central Park North, it sounds like there's a couple of units remaining, where can they go to get more information? Where can they learn more about your company? Um, sure, sure. Thank you for asking. Um, well, Grid Group is the name of the company. We do have a website, uh, gridgroup.com. Uh, 145CPN has a similar website, which uh, shows the project. And, and, um, and of course, on Street Easy, there's links to the various addresses and projects. Uh, but we try to keep our website, you know, not as current as it should be, but we're working on it. And we'll have, you know, have links to those various projects. Awesome. All right. Well, um, Yanni, great talking to you. Uh, you're doing some really exciting stuff and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll have you back. Thank you very much. No, I'd like that. Okay. For more on all things real estate and the law, subscribe to this and our other podcasts. Follow Bergstein, Flynn, Knowlton, and Polina on social media. Subscribe to our newsletter and go to bfklawoffice.com. That's bfklawoffice.com to learn more.